All right, good morning. We're getting the baptistry ready for our cliff diving here in just a minute. No. Um, how many of y'all have ever had uh, your identity stolen? Has that ever happened to you? Raise your hand if, if that has happened to you. Y'all have experienced that. Okay, good. Like my mom and I? Um, a, a couple of us. I've had my identity stolen a couple of times. Um, more of you than you realize have had your identity stolen. I know that. Uh, Lucy Stang contacted me this last week on Facebook. And uh, she was excited to talk to me. And I was like, wow, Lucy, it's great to talk to you. And she immediately said, man, I just came into a bunch of money. I said, well, this is an odd thing for you to tell your preacher, Lucy. Okay, good, 10%. Um, (laughs) But but we're talking back and forth, Lucy and I, on Facebook. And... um, and she says, I know how you can get this money, too. I said, great, Lucy, this is good. And then she sent me to a link, and we had this conversation. Well, we got into this conversation, and, you know, obviously, I'm starting to realize at this point, I'm, I don't think I'm talking to Lucy. Um, I'm talking to somebody else. So I said, Lucy, remind me of the town that you lived in in South Africa. I was trying to think of it. What was the name of that town? And Lucy said, Zimbabwe. I said, Zimbabwe? Is that a city or a nation? And she goes, Zimbabwe town. Zimbabwe town, South Africa. So as soon as I realized, I said, well, I I came into something really good, too. And I sent her a link to my website. I rickrolled Lucy Stain. And then I was praying that it was not Lucy Stain <laughs> at the end of the day. But I was thinking about that. I was thinking, man, how, how creepy it feels when someone steals your identity, when somebody steps in and pretends to be you. Um, and I, I think that that's, especially when they're stealing your friend's identity, somebody that you know. And I think that's what Paul is kind of feeling with the situation that's happening in, in Corinth. Uh, where it's, it's great that I'm, I'm working and we have different people that have maybe slightly different gospels. We have different teams doing different things maybe. And that's good. Christ said, you know, if, if they're not against us, they're for us. He did say that. And so, you know, it's not okay that they're a different group than you. But then all of a sudden, you realize that they're representing something that's a completely different gospel. That it's not representing you at all. These are different people. And that's what you're going to start seeing at this point in 2 Corinthians, where Paul is going to start building up. He began his letter to the Corinthians with this message, um, defending himself and defending his ministry, his authenticity and who he is. Um, But as the letter goes on, he's going to get a little bit more firm about these false apostles that later he's going to say are masquerading, that are not representing Christ and they're false representatives of who my Lord is. And he's going to talk about that in in just a minute. But before I get into this text, and I'm going to be in chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. And so you can go ahead and and turn there. But before we get into that, I wanted to kind of tie this into this morning's class. We were in Psalm 1 quite a bit. And I want to tie it into what what I I think Paul understood um, as his gospel at at the time. Um, If you're listening to this um, online, I'd like you to stop. And just read three verses. And if you're here, I would like you to just write these verses down. Because to get into a really good study of this chapter, there are three uh, other verses that I'd really like to make to get you to be thinking about. These are Isaiah 49, verses 8 through 9. I'm going to read a couple of these in a second. 
Isaiah 52, verses 7 through 15, and Deuteronomy 13, verses 12 to 17. I'm convinced that these three scriptures are not just um, convenient references, but this is the Bible that he has open in front of him. These are the verses that we are studying together with Paul. He's drawing out of these verses, and it's going to be really important to what he's saying here. Uh, because this is a section of, of the Bible that is largely, and I hate using the phrase, we say this about everything, uh, taken out of context, right? Um, it's, it's difficult to quote a scripture without somebody saying you're taking it out of context. Uh, um, and I think it's important with this that we really embed it in Paul's context when he says, do not be unequally yoked. That's always used today with reference to marriage, with reference to dating relationships. And even though I think that there may be application there, this chapter is not dealing with marriage. It's not dealing with dating. We're dealing with something way bigger than even that. And I think it's important that we kind of ransom and redeem this verse from that that confinement of marriage and look at this as our relationships as a whole and what it means to be yoked with somebody in the, in the first place. That's, this is super exciting to me uh, to get into that concept because it, it really is beautiful. It's important. I want to talk to you about Paul's kingdom, what he was excited about. Occasionally, I'd say once a quarter, maybe once a year, I go over this because it was one of the most exciting things I discovered in the gospel uh, personally. And I want to share it with you, and a lot of you have heard this many times, but it's important to me to repeat it over and over because uh, this is something that excited me so much, and I want to excite other people with it. I discovered this in the Old Testament um, about a decade ago and, and shared it with a friend um, the time he was an incredible mentor to me, which Jim McGuigan. And he said, oh, yeah, and he gave me a book to read on it because it was really excited about it. But it's, it, it went over the story of Israel. And if I were just to give you the Old Testament, I want you to remember this. For Paul, the Old Testament was his Bible. This is what he had. This is what he's studying and this is what he's reading when he's sharing the gospel of Christ. And for the Old Testament, this is the basic story. Israel was Genesis, the book of Genesis. Israel becomes a nation. That's most of what the book of Genesis is about. In the book of Exodus, they come out of slavery from Egypt. Then in Leviticus, which... Seems like a boring book maybe to some people, but it's one of the most exciting messages because Leviticus is God saying, yes, I'm going to set my camp among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. I'm going to set my dwelling among you. And so Israel comes out of slavery. They cross the Red Sea. They receive the law. They receive God's dwelling amongst them. Forty years they're in the wilderness. Now this is, this is the Old Testament. This is the story. Forty years and then they're in the wilderness. Then under Joshua, they come into the promised land. They were given this command. You are going to take the kingdom into this land. And as far south as the Negev, as far north as the mountains, as far east as the sea, as far west as the river, this land is yours. And they send out 12 tribes, each in a different direction. And he says, I want you to take this, in, this, this inheritance and this kingdom, and you will establish this kingdom in this place. And they went out and first to the kings of the south, then they swept to the kings of the north, and they took that land, and it was to be theirs, right? And then they went up two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. 
And half of the tribes pronounced blessing on the, the people of Israel if they walked in God's commands. They called these out from Mount Gerizim. And the other half of the tribes pronounced curses on the people if they left God. This is what would happen. And they would call that out from Mount Ebal. And then after that, they lived and the book of Judges comes into play and they're fighting with the Philistines over the land to take full possession of this land. And the great climax of the Old Testament is finally King David on the throne. That is the story that you grew up with. That's it. That is the big story of Israel. And most of the Old Testament deals with that story. And you're left to wonder why. This is weird. I don't get it. What's happening here and why is that relevant to me? Paul now is reading this and he sees this. Jesus was born and as a baby, he's taken out of Egypt. It says this in Matthew so that it would be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And so he's taken out of Egypt. He's immediately baptized in chapter three of Matthew. And then he goes and he's tested in the wilderness for how many days? For 40 days, corresponding to Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. Each time he's tested, he responds with Scripture, but not simply Scripture. He responds with a specific Scripture. On all three occasions, he responds with Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8. Moses' speech to Israel after their 40 years in the wilderness. And he's saying, I am this new Moses. This is what's happening. And as soon as that 40 years is complete, or 40 days is complete, he goes and he spreads this message. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is among you. Go spread the kingdom. And he sends out 12, each in their own direction, with that message. You go establish the kingdom. I am the new Joshua. I am the new Moses. This is what's happening. This is incredible, right? You're looking at this and you're going, no way. I can't believe I'm experiencing this. I can't believe this is actually happening. You know, the same way it did in the Old Testament, it's happening right here in Christ. And finally, this parallel carries. And and they went up Ebal and Gerizim, and Christ goes up on a mountain. And he says this, all the disciples came to him and he spoke to them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. Right? He is identifying with that, and he's entering into a covenant of blessing and cursing. Luke records the curses as well, just as Joshua did. That parallel is crazy. And when you start understanding the Gospels in light of these kinds of motifs that are kind of plugged into the Gospels, man, it's, it's, in, it's next level. It's amazing. And I get excited when I find things like that. I'm like, this is rich. This is deep. Look at what Christ is doing. That is what Paul is discovering as he's going through the Gospels. He's reading these stories. He's finding this stuff. So he sees himself as a part of this kingdom and establishing this kingdom. Now, he's going to find root for what you're going to see in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and what was happening in the days of Joshua when um, a certain cities and people rebelled and you didn't completely, and I know this gets into crazy stuff, right, wipe out the Philistines and, and all the people that were living in the land. If you do it, didn't do it entirely and you left a seed or you intermarried or you did something that, that corrupted your teaching and your culture, you were supposed to burn those cities down entirely. You were supposed to completely destroy them and you were not allowed to take loot from them. Um, that's, I'm quoting, I'm just going to read it because this is an awkward passage that 
man, we have to get into some other time to really get deep into the uh, how on earth is this okay with everybody. But this is Deuteronomy 13, 12 through 17. If you hear it said about one of the towns that the Lord your God is giving to you to live in, that wicked men, and he uses the Hebrew word Belial. It's the word for worthlessness or trash. It later became in Hebrew culture the word for Satan. If, if wicked men, Belial, have risen among you and have led the people to their own, of their own town astray, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods you've not known, then you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. And if it's true that it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done among you, you must certainly put to the sword all who live in the town, destroy it completely, both its people, its livestock. It's livestock too, right? Gather all the plunder of the town into the middle of the public square and publicly burn the town and all its plunder as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It is to remain a ruin forever, never to be rebuilt. None of those condemned things shall be found in your hands. Now, I believe that's one of the root verses he's using when he comes into 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He's going to refer to Belial, and he's going to refer to come out of it, and he's going to say, touch no unclean thing. So there's three clear references to this chapter, and this is how he's thinking, right? So he's going to go on. He's going to say this. Um, I'm going to be, just begin in verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? Uh, I couldn't believe that that's what Dane's class was on this morning. He was in Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not um, walk in the path of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight shall be in the law of the Lord, and on his law he will meditate day and night. He gets into this message of saying, Listen, You'll be blessed if you don't walk with this crew or you don't hang out with sinners. That's not a popular message today, especially in a church that is as so, so many of you as mature and evangelistic in the way a lot of you think. But the big message today is, listen, man, I'm supposed to be in the world, just not of it. But man, of course I'm supposed to have non-Christian friends. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to be out there. I'm, supposed to, I'm not supposed to be some kind of holy religious elite that shuts myself in a building and acts like I'm better than everybody else. That has been our common message, and there are truths in that. But the truth is, if you look up this subject of fellowship in the Bible itself and in the New Testament, that's not exactly the picture you get. It's not frequently the picture you get at all. Oftentimes the message is this, come out. Get out. Stop having fellowship where you don't have any business having fellowship. And I'm going to talk about what the differences are because I think it's important that we have influence in the world. But that's exactly it, that we have influence in the world. Um, this, is, uh, this is an actual picture this, uh, of a, yon- a donkey yoked to an ox. I guess they still do this. This picture was taken in Jerusalem. Um, it was a command in the Old Testament that you don't do this. It says this in... Um, uh, Deuteronomy 22.10, don't plow with an ox and a donkey yoke together. Don't do it. And it's weird that this is a command, that this is an instruction. It's kind of like a few months ago, I was in, in Deuteronomy with you and found a verse that said, don't put a stumbling block in the path of a blind man. Don't curse a deaf man. I said, is this really an issue that you have to make commands to tell people not to put stumbling blocks in the paths of blind people? 
But he's making it. There's a message in Deuteronomy behind these teachings. They're not there to be funny. They're not there because the people were that wicked necessarily. They had deeper truths behind them. And so when you find verses that say, man, don't don't yoke a donkey and an ox together. Why? Well, because that donkey's not going to keep up with that ox. In fact, he's probably going to hold that ox back. Don't do this, man. It doesn't work that way. Uh, Now, when I think of the picture of a yoke, I'll get to another picture here in a second. I get to a picture of yoke. I was uncomfortable with this sermon because when I think of a yoke, I think of slavery. I was going to share a video with you of a guy giving instructions. I watched an whole instructional video on how to yoke oxen yesterday. So boring. But um, this whole idea of, of the, this ox bending its head so you could put this thing, so you could put the, uh, the yoke over it, and you could put the pin in the top. And he was, the, the farmer was telling you exactly where you had to put the pin and where you had to keep these oxen and everything. And I was thinking, man, this is slavery. I don't want that. This is, this is not a comfortable sermon because I don't like the idea of wearing a yoke at all. But the truth is, a yoke is liberating. And this is, this is exactly why. Every one of us has a burden. Um, I do a lot of stuff in my house by myself. I'm, a lot of you guys are guilty of this. You're trying to move massive pieces of furniture by yourself and you become so you come of the most creative ways that you can try to move something you have no business moving. And most of us are guilty of this. Okay. Um, a lot of injuries caused because of this. You're doing something you got no business doing just because you, you don't want to call your dad. You don't want to call your friend. You don't want to call somebody to come help you. So everyone has a burden. Everyone carries a burden. And the idea of a yoke is we're going to do this together. I need somebody in my life to walk with me, to do this together, to help me carry this. I was trying to move a piece of furniture out of my basement this last year. Massive entertainment center. When I moved to Colorado, the movers said, "Um, I pray for the person that has to take this out of your basement. And they put that in my basement. And they said, I have no idea how they're going to get it out. We had a team of eight people to ten people at my house trying to get that entertainment center out of my basement. Some of y'all were there. Some of you guys got to witness this. And we get it halfway out in the stairs, and I've got five people stuck in my basement because we can't move it up or down. And I don't know how long it was there, but they were all stuck in my basement. Finally, we pushed it against the wall. Everybody left my house, and we left the entertainment center in the stairwell because we could not move it. I finally called Brad and said, Brad, would you give me a hand? Bring an axe. And we took care of business, man. We took care of the entertainment center, so it's gone. But the reason I'm sharing that story is because I called Eric. Eric came over to help me out with something, and he brought something. I don't know what they're called. I don't know where Eric is. But have you seen these things you carry on your forearms? A, a forklift for people? Forearm forklift. And I couldn't believe how much easier it made it. Why? Because one person was connected to another person, and together you become a team. You're doing something. You're working together. That's what it means to be yoked with somebody. Now, I want you to hear where I'm going with this. When you find that person in your life, you find somebody in your spiritual walk that you can yoke together with. We're like, okay, we have a mission. We have a project. We have direction from the Spirit. And I've got somebody doing this with me. Do you know how much more powerful two become than one? How much more powerful three become than one? This is what it's about to be yoked. It's not slavery. It is power. That is the idea of a yoke. 
I'm getting somebody on my side. Now, you also know what it is when you have been yoked together with somebody that is fighting against you. Now, what I'm going to be giving you this message, the message that I'm giving you this morning is this. The first part of it that I'd written down and I changed a lot of it after class this morning because I was inspired by some things people said. The first part of it is this. I want you to look at your life and to ask yourself a simple question. What is holding me back? Who is holding me back? What is keeping me from the direction God wants me to go? And if there's somebody in my life that is keeping me from growing, keeping me from doing something, I need to do something about it. Now, I want to tell you this. This is typically applied to marriage. And that's exactly what it doesn't apply to. Because if you want to look at that, that's 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 13. And that tells you what to do if you have an unbelieving spouse, an unbelieving wife, an unbelieving husband. It actually says stay with them. Okay, that's what it says. And so using this verse to address a marriage and saying get out of the marriage because they're holding you back, that's not the right use of this scripture. And that's typically how it's used. Okay, go to 1 Corinthians 7 for that. This is talking about people you are yoked with that you are connected to, that you're working together with. But in class this morning, I was inspired to ask the second part of the question, which is going to be more important to you. Who are you holding back? Because you might not be the good guy in this story. I want to look at the other side of things. Am I holding somebody back in my relationships? Is there somebody that would be stronger, doing better, if maybe I wasn't weighing them down? And maybe I need to start carrying my load, getting on board with them, going in the same direction with them. Because this whole year, I was praying in January, and I don't want to let it go. I was praying in January, God, I pray this would be a year that we grow. And I mean grow and move forward. That People that feel like they're in a pit, that they're stagnant, that they're not moving forward, that they're not growing. I pray that this year we would move forward. That we grow, that I'd be closer to Christ and the direction He wants to take me at the end of this year than I was at the beginning of this year, that I would somehow move forward. And I think that that's the way we have to think in my life. I know that's what God wants for me. But the thing is, there's stuff in our life that's holding us back. And it terrifies me to think that I could be holding somebody else back. It says in Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12, two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily uh, broken. So I want to ask yourself this question before we move on the text. Who are you in this story? Where do you fall? Um, you don't have to be yoked. I could be wrong on this. Be patient with me for what I'm about to, about to say. This is just me thinking, trying to be as honest with Scripture as I can. I'm not sure you're ne- necessarily yoked even to your spouse. I'm not sure that that's the way the word is used. The yoke is somebody who you've said, I'm going a direction, I'm on board with you. And sometimes, listen, that's not going to be your spouse. I pray that it is. In a healthy marriage, it definitely is. But sometimes you've got to say, I'm going to support this person. I'm going to be there for this person. But in my spiritual walk, I have got to move forward. And I need to find somebody to help me. 
As a church, this is the first thing I think we have a responsibility to do for each other, is to carry each other forward, is to move with each other, and that when you're around me, it's not awkward. When I'm around you, it's not awkward for me to say, Gary, um, my God means the world to me, and I've been letting him down, and I need to move forward, and I want somebody that can motivate me, remind me of of commitments I've made to Christ, and I need you to hold me accountable, and I just want to worship him with my life, and I don't want that to be awkward between us. And it wouldn't be for Gary. It's not, I don't want that to be awkward between us. I don't want there to be people in my life where all I can talk about is soccer and fishing and football. That's stupid, and I love all of those things, but they're stupid. That's not what my fellowship is rooted in. Soccer is a ball. When I met Josh Fry, you know, we were joking around about this the other day because we meet pretty frequently. Uh, when I met Josh Fry, it's like the first thing we had in common was soccer. He's good at it, and I'm not. <laughs> but the first thing we had in common, in common is soccer. But I am in love with that sport. I think that that sport is amazing. Um, and we started talking, and that, but that's what we would talk about. And there came a point that was so beautiful in our conversations where we both realized you know, we're a lot deeper than soccer, aren't we? And we started talking about Christ and sharing that in common and being able to carry that together and go forward with that together. And so he's saying this. He's going to, he's going to, I'm going to move on in the text. I'm sorry. But he's going to start out and say, don't be unequally yoked. I mean, you don't allow that to happen. Be in the world, have a community, have friends, but don't allow somebody to share your yoke that is holding you back. You need to move forward. So he says this, For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Now he's going to use the Hebrew word. That's why they maintained it there. And he's referencing, I believe, Deuteronomy. And he's making a really serious dark point, if he is. What fellowship do I have with that trash, with the worldliness, with the stuff that's about to burn, with the stuff that's about to die? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. I just want to think about that for a second and, and talk to you a little, bit, a little bit about things that have held me back um, and areas where I have held others back. And I, all of my life, I want you to keep this in mind. My, my parents know this. People who know me know this. All of my life, I have been around this. This has been my job. Um, somebody this morning said, man, I'm struggling with my work. They're asking me to work on Sundays. And I said, mine too. I'm with you. But all my life, this has been my church. This has been what I've been around. But even in my communities, which has been church, I've developed a lot of close relationships that have held me back. And I've developed a lot of close relationships where I have held people back. I've been on both ends of that. And have you ever just sat around, even with close friends, and realized, why do we gossip as much as we do? Seriously, why am I around that kind of language? Have you ever sat around with people and say, why is it 
that I'm around people that do nothing but complain, nothing but bicker. This is the language that's inundating my culture and everybody that's close to me. Why I'm around people that show so little grace. It's like they haven't even come into contact with the cross sometimes. It's like it's a song they sing, but is it really in them? And there's so many times where I've sat around and said, and this is, wow, this has been the biggest burden in my life. I can promise you that. The biggest burden in my life is to see churches turn something that I hold so sacred into a business. And that's something I've been guilty of, and it's been in so many conversations I've had with ministers and people. The gospel is no longer Jesus Christ in so many lives today. The gospel is church. And what church you go to and what happens at it. That has become the gospel in today's American Christianity. And you hang out, you yoked together with junk, and then you get excited about what's happening for an hour on a Sunday. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is God is here among you. And he doesn't leave when you say amen. He doesn't stay at the church when you go to work. He doesn't do that. It's not the way it works. And that's why throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul is going to be saying, I stand before you and before God. I stand in his presence. I speak as before him. I live as before him. And in this chapter, that's exactly what he's saying. God has made his dwelling among you. Don't you get it that we're the temple? This is what's happening. This is who we are. The gospel is not church. The gospel is Jesus Christ alive in us. Redemption, reconciliation, and a life that's lived this way. God has a design for your life. He has a direction and He has somebody who He's designed for you to be. And he's given you brothers and sisters to provide for you. But there's two decisions that we need to make. And this message is actually super simple. One, don't hold people back. Make sure that in your relationships, you aren't the one dragging your feet. And number two is this. You do not allow someone to hold you back. Disfellowshipping in churches is something that... Um, we, we turned into a commercial thing back in the day. It became ugly. People would do this for weird reasons. They would, they would be really publicly mean and horrible to people. But disfellowship in general is a very godly concept. I know it's not a word you like to hear from the pulpit, right? Um, one time after church, the closing prayer, it was back in my church at Leander, the closing prayer said, uh, God, help us just go outside and just, and he tried to say, just fellowship with one another. And he said, help us go outside and disfellowship one another. Man, that prayer was over. I was laughing so hard. But, um, but no, seriously, I do think disfellowshipping someone can be a very godly thing to do. You do it in love. You do it in the most beautiful way. But if somebody is a gossip, if somebody slanders, if somebody's negative, if they don't have grace in their life, in love, you set yourself apart from a person that does that. You set yourself apart from it. And I know that's not language you want to hear. And if I wasn't right out of 2 Corinthians 6, I would be terrified telling you that. But if somebody is acting that way, holding you back in a negative influence, let them know. I can't allow that in my life. 
I can't allow that around me because I become just like it fast. You cannot put me down in Texas where I don't immediately start getting that accent back in a few days, right? You can't put me down in a culture where I don't start getting this back really fast. You put me in the culture, I'm going to become like it. You are no different. You cannot help but become like what you are around. You cannot help it. And that's why disfellowshipping in a godly way is something that's beautiful to do with people. But work hard to bring people back. And when you have to put somebody out of your life, I pray that there's tears involved. I pray that the tears continue to flow and I pray that it would never be a cold process. But when somebody doesn't represent my God and my life, I cannot be yoked with that person. Now, I pray that you'd hear the words that I just said with grace. I pray that you'd hear them through the lens of wisdom. I pray that you'd hear them through the lens of 2 Corinthians 6 and not from Jeff. Because the way this is applied in your life needs to be something that is done with incredible wisdom. But God's design is that you grow. I want to quote Psalm 1 again. It says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the path of the wicked. Sit in the, um, stand in the path of sinners. Sit in the seat of mockers. That's not where you're going to live. Your delight is in the law of the Lord. Um, I want to ask this blessing over you, and I want to ask this prayer over you. I pray that for those of you who are strong, I pray that you are the ones that are engaging, that you're out there. I pray that we would be involved in this community and in this world. But we are designed to change the world and not to be changed by it. I pray that God would restore reverence in his people today. Absolute fear, in a beautiful way, right? of a very present God that you stand before. And I pray that you would, Christ said this, come to me if you're weary, if if your burden's too heavy, Matthew 11, I think, come to me and I'll give you rest. Because my yoke is easy. Why? Because I'm on the other end of it. My burden is light. Why? Because I'm an ox, man. I can carry this. Just get in here with me and let's go. But let's move forward. I pray that God by his spirit would give you wisdom as to where to apply this in your life. But I pray that in our relationships, we would really move each other forward. And I pray your forgiveness for some of you who are close to me whenever I have let you down in these ways. Whenever I haven't served as an example of Christ example of passion, example of love, an example of forgiveness. Um, or when God has not been my life and it's been evident that maybe something else is, I want to change that in myself. Um, Father, I just want to come before you and um, mm, I, I, I couldn't, I, I can't uh, express with the grace or the severity that I think you you lay on my heart um, how important this message is to your people today. But I pray, God, that in every way we would take our faith and take it so seriously as we are living and praying and walking and working before a very real and very present God. I pray, God, that um, 
that for those of us, and, and we've all been on both sides of this, but I pray, Father, for those of us that have somehow started dragging our feet or hurting in our walk. Um, I pray, Father, that we would, uh, we would be mindful of those that were around that would motivate others. God, for those that are strong, I pray that we'd show patience and kindness to the weak, that the strong would bear the burdens of the weak, that we won't forget that. But at the same time, God, if we're not moving forward and if there's people that are holding us back because of our uh, allegiances to things that don't belong to you, I pray, God, that you'd liberate us from that. Give us the strength to um, not be yoked, to not be partnered together with something that doesn't belong to you, but we redeem ourselves completely. God, for those that are in this room, if there's anybody that, that you've just been speaking to, that your, your word is, is just speaking to their life, um, I pray that you give them courage. I pray, pray that they won't be held back by fear. I pray, God, that uh, by your grace, uh, they would take a step out in faith uh, and make changes in their lives, whatever it needs to be, whatever needs to be done. I pray that you give us the courage to make those changes. But that Second Corinthians six would be something that hits us in the heart, that moves us forward, and um, that causes us to live our lives here in reverent fear of an Almighty and holy and loving God. God, we love you so so much, and I praise you for giving us people um, to move us forward. Uh, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship our God together.